halfway through our series of the book of Jonah, and it's a story about this reluctant prophet who uh, ran away from God. Now, you would probably agree with me, right, that the first two chapters of the book of Jonah, things just aren't going too good for Jonah, are they? He's not having a good run just at this moment. God told him to go to Nineveh and preach against the wickedness of that city. And so what did Jonah do? He's like, I'm out of here, no way. And he jumps on a ship and he starts sailing for Spain. In other words, I'm gonna get as far away from Nineveh as I possibly know how to get in this world. But along the way, um, God sends a great storm. All the sailors on the ship thought they were gonna die and Jonah confesses, hey, I am the reason for why this storm has come upon you. Throw me overboard. And that's exactly what they did. They throw him into the sea. The storm calms down and God sends a huge fish to swallow Jonah. And when that fish comes and swallows him, eventually Jonah learns, wait a minute, God may not be done with me just yet. Now, there's no doubt that this is the lowest point in Jonah's life. There he is, three days in the belly of the fish when he needs to come clean with God. But this is his lowest point. And I've got this radical idea for us as a church family. Are you ready for this radical idea? This is gonna blow your hair back. Those of you that are still fortunate to have some, this is gonna blow your hair back. Why don't we just obey God starting right now? Why don't we just declare right now, God, you've got me. No need for any storm, no nightmare. I am all yours and I will just follow you. Is that just a radical idea? Why don't we just obey the Lord? But inside that fish, Jonah does some real soul searching. He comes clean with God. He has three days to think about the direction that his life is is headed. And Jonah makes his declaration. We read it at the very end of chapter two. Starting verse nine, he says this, what I have vowed, I will make good. What I have vowed, I will make good. And I will say, salvation comes from the Lord. Now this right here is a critical moment in Jonah's life. It's that moment that Jonah chooses to surrender. It's that moment where he says, God, I am all yours. And right there in the middle of the ocean, in that fish, he is dying. He's doing some dying, really. Dying to himself, dying to his own selfish desires, dying to his own will, dying to his fears. And he's starting to come clean with God and he's starting to declare some things. I will follow you. Salvation does come from you. It's a critical moment in his life. And it is a critical moment in each and every one of our lives. That moment when we say, God, I'm all in with you. I will follow you. And I wonder, do you remember your moment when you came clean with God? For some of you, that was a long time ago. For others of you, it it wasn't that long ago, and maybe even for others still, we have not had that moment yet where we got down on our knees and we said, God, I'm so sorry for what I've done. I'm sorry for chasing my own will and my own pleasures, and I choose to live for you. But I wonder, do you remember that moment in your life? Are you still just as excited today about it as you were when you first made it? Do you still have that same sense, that same feeling of great joy about God's deliverance in your life? You know, if you're here today, but you have not yet had that conversation with God, that that conversation that just simply declares in your own words, God, I am all yours. If you've yet to have that, my prayer for you is that sometime today, hopefully before you leave here today, 
that God will get a hold of you. The word of God will speak some real truth and some conviction into your heart and mind. And your response will be like Jonah's. I will make good. I will follow you. Well, in the last verse of Jonah 2, we read that uh, the fish literally beached itself and vomited Jonah out onto the beach. Now, we all have great imaginations. You can use your own imagination of just what Jonah looked like coming out of that fish three days in there. You know, I, I imagine he's all shriveled up, sitting in water and gunk for three days, and he came out. He must have been a mess. But then this happens. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Now, I don't know how quickly that happened. Was that the same day? Did God give Jonah an opportunity to go home and take a shower first? Was this a month later? We don't know exactly how much time went by. But at some point, the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. And God said this, go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. For those of you that have your Bibles open, would you turn backwards one page, and would you look at chapter one, verse one? I wanna compare two verses with you. Jonah chapter one, one, and Jonah chapter three, one. And what I want you to see is that Jonah chapter one, one, and Jonah chapter three, one, they are essentially identical. It's like a part one, part two of this story. They both start exactly the same way. So what does it say in Jonah chapter one? What are the very first words of this story? The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it. The same way it starts in chapter three. It's the same command. It's just Jonah's second opportunity. And what's the big stark difference between one, one and three, one? It's Jonah's response. Because in the first chapter, Jonah says, I'm out of here. But in the third chapter, Jonah's like, oh, you want me to go to Nineveh? Right away, sir. Yes, sir. No need for a storm. No need for a fish. You got it. And Jonah goes. This is a completely different guy in many ways. He gets a second chance. I don't know about you. Let me ask you a question. Do you love a do-over? I love do-overs. Do-overs are one of the greatest inventions of all times. I know our church really well. I know our community. We got any golfers in this room? I don't play very much golf. Um, uh, if you've ever played golf with me, you know why I don't play much golf. It's not one of my better sports. But I do own clubs. This is one of them, and they look real good in my basement. And um, you know how it is. When you get up to the tee box, right? And you're, you've got your ball down and, and you visualize this thing going 300 yards straight down the middle of the fairway every time. You get up there and you're thinking about it. You hopefully everybody's being quiet. You come back like this. Don't worry, there's no ball down here. I'm not gonna hit anything. Some of you in the front were like, what? You lined up, you come back, you know, and you come back through and bam. And then you're shocked when it doesn't go past the women's tees. You know what I mean? <laughs> We've all been there, right? What do you do when you hit the ball and you think it's gonna go 300 yards? You visualized it going down the fairway, but it doesn't pass the next tee box. What do you do? Here's what a lot of people wanna do. You know what? I'm gonna take my mulligan and I'm gonna do that over again. Now we've all, if you've ever played golf, you know you've taken a mulligan before and we love mulligans. You know what the official definition of a mulligan is? Listen to this, this definition. A mulligan, a mulligan is a second chance to perform an action. 
usually after the first chance went wrong through bad luck or blunder. It is best, its best known meaning and application is in the game of golf, whereby a player is informally allowed to replay a stroke even though this is against the formal rules of golf. In other words, you're not supposed to do that. You're not supposed to get a second chance in golf. That's actually against the rules. But a mulligan is this thing that says, even though I shouldn't get an extra chance, I'm gonna get a second chance. And if you've ever needed a do-over in your life, then you appreciate this concept of a mulligan. My, my, uh, my children love video games just like your children do. You know what the neat thing about a video game is? If you don't like the way the game is going, you can hit reset and start over. It's like it never happened. Um, my, my sons both love chess, and we have this electronic version of chess. And, and if you make some plays, some moves that you don't like and doesn't go your way, you can hit a button and it rewinds every move and starts back where you wanted to start up picking up again. Is there anybody in this life that wouldn't love to have a button that just rewound a couple plays that you made and got a do-over? Every last one of us. You know what I love about having four services at New Life? If one of these things doesn't go well, I got three more tries. That's what I like. You know, I joke around with a Saturday night service. Um, at Saturday night, I always tease them. I say, you guys always get a little bit extra because I figure out what doesn't work and I edit it overnight and then I come back the next day and you guys never know. You're getting the edited version because I get a do-over. And then I joke around with the final service of the day, the fourth time I preach this sermon. This is the third time. So the fourth time I, I tease them and I said, you guys are getting the most perfected version of this talk. Now, everybody before you wasn't quite as good. You're getting the best version. I, I love, I don't really think that's actually true. I think you're getting the best version. Um, Let me, let me re make sure I'd, you're not getting shortchanged is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> I love do-overs and you love do-overs too. You know who else loves do-overs? God loves to give some do-overs. Aren't you glad? Because we all make mistakes. And if you look around this room, you know what you're not gonna find? You are not gonna find a perfect person. You're gonna see a room full of people who every last one of us has needed a do-over in our lives because we're not perfect. Given enough time, each of us is going to mess up very badly and we're gonna need a do-over. You know, um, I'm a big fan of ESPN. They have a documentary series called 30 for 30. Have you ever watched these, these sports documentaries? They are excellent if you've never seen them. But the, they are uh, these documentaries that they've been doing for years now on athletes. They do them on, um, on sports teams or controversial things that happen. Or just, they're just very fascinating. And uh, a few weeks ago, um, the 30 for 30 series released a brand new documentary on the life story of Michael Vick. Do you know him? Michael Vick, Michael Vick, he, uh, this was a two-part series. Maybe you saw it. The first part was two hours. The second part was two hours. That's right. The whole documentary was four hours long. Guess who watched every minute of it? This guy. If you know his story, you'd probably agree with me that it's probably one of the biggest do-overs in sports history. 
Michael Vick, when he came out of college, he was drafted by the Atlanta Falcons, and he quickly became the highest paid player in the NFL. And if you know the story, he did some absolutely horrible things to some animals, didn't he? He and his buddies, they had an illegal dog fighting ring. There was a lot of cruelty to animals. There's a lot of horrible things, which he would definitely later admit that he did some horrible things. He ended up paying a huge price for that. He had to go to prison for almost two years. He lost everything. The Atlanta Falcons fired him as a, as a member of their team. The fan base, not just in Atlanta, but pretty much the fan base across the country was like, we don't want anything to do with you. Good for you. See you in prison right away. That was kind of the feeling of, of many people at that time. Um, in this documentary, Michael Vick talks about how before he went to prison, he had millions of dollars. He said, I'm just so used to looking at my bank accounts and saw millions of dollars to do anything I want. The day he walked out of prison, he had about $200 to his name, he said. He lost everything. Upon his release from prison, he didn't know if he was ever gonna play football again. Would anybody ever extend him any kind of opportunity, any kind of grace? Then one day, if you follow the story and you know the history, you know that the Philadelphia Eagles, who were coached by then Andy Reid, who is now the coach of the Kansas City Chiefs. Did you know the Chiefs won the Super Bowl? Did you know that? I don't know if I've ever talked about that. Did... But the Philadelphia Eagles, they gave him a, a chance. They gave him a short contract to see what he could do. And he did all right with it. And it was very controversial. You might remember um, you know, people were picketing outside the stadium. There, uh, it was all over the news. How could they do this? And, and uh, he played pretty good that first year and good enough to sign him to a long-term deal and he had a good run there in Philadelphia. And when, when his playing career was winding down and the Philadelphia Eagles were ready to move on to another quarterback, Michael Vick said this. He said, I will never forget the opportunities given to me by Andy Reid and the Philadelphia Eagles when no one else would. I'll never forget it. Andy Reid would later say, just a few years ago, he said, you know, football player aside, this kid has changed his life around. You know, uh, Michael Vick, as you guys know, he, he may know, he, he has become actually an animal rights activist now. He works with the Humane Society, and that started in prison. And uh, he is now, uh, you know, somebody who, who goes around speaking at Humane Societies and other events about how wrong animal cruelty is. And he talks in the documentary, he'll spend the rest of his life trying to convince people that he does love animals and he felt so terribly about what he did. But Andy Reid said he's turned his life around and Andy Reid would also say, you know, he's been through a whole lot of things. He's got a big heart. He's a kind person. People have a hard time believing all the stuff that, that took place. But I'm telling you today, he's a good person. That's Andy Reid. Now, in 2017, he was retired from the NFL and the Atlanta Falcons were playing their very last game in their old stadium before they moved to their new one. And uh, an organization that's had nothing to do with Michael Vick and a fan base that wanted nothing to do with him, they invited him back for the final game and as a sense of like a bookend on the story of their organization and Michael Vick. It's like not everybody, but the majority of people is like, this is us moving on. And they, they drove him out in a convertible out to the center field. And if you can watch the YouTube video of this, they gave him a, a rousing ovation and like a welcome home kind of feel. I'm not defending Michael Vick at all, but isn't it true that all of us need a do-over from time to time? And I can imagine for Michael Vick, that had to have been a very special moment in his life. 
to be able to ride out there and be in that organization one more time and to be accepted. We all make mistakes, and isn't it true that getting another shot at something can really change the course of your life, can it? Jonah gets another shot. Jonah gets a chance at a do-over. He gets a chance to make right what he had done wrong. And when he does this, he joins a long list of people in the Bible that also got a do-over, like Moses. One of the greatest men in the Old Testament. What happened to him? He murdered a man in cold blood. And guess what? God gave him a do-over. Like Abraham. God told Abraham, I got a big plan for your family and your descendants are gonna outnumber the stars. And Abraham said, I got a better plan. I'm not gonna wait on you. I'm gonna do my own thing. And God gave him a do-over. I think about David. The Bible describes David as a man after God's own heart. You know what David did at one point in his life? He stole a man's wife and had her husband murdered and covered it up as if he was a knight in shining armor. God gave him a do-over. I think about Peter, one of Jesus' really close friends. In the span of just a couple hours, in his anger, he chopped off a man's ear, and, and then a few hours later, he denied that he ever knew Jesus three times. And he got a do-over. I think about Paul, who wrote 13 letters of the New Testament. Before that, he was a persecutor of Christians. He tore up families. He was responsible for the first Christian martyr. He, he, he went house to house, ripping families apart, throwing them in prison, all because they believed in Jesus. He got a do-over. God is a God who allows do-overs. And what you're gonna see is that not only does Jonah get a do-over, but in a surprising unexpected, out of nowhere move by God, the Ninevites get a do-over as well. Now look at verse three. Here's how the story continues. So Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Nineveh is mentioned several times as a great and mighty city. It had walls around it, had 120,000 people living there. You know, you might recall from the first message that Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. It's like, it's like the heart of all the evil of the Assyrians coming after God's people. And it says that Jonah went into that city and he went in there and started preaching. He goes into the city and he starts talking about how 40 days from now, you're all gonna be toast. And you know, you've gotta know that God's hand of protection had to have been on Jonah or he would have never survived 10 minutes. Now think, think about this. Imagine if you or I were called to go to North Korea. Right now, North Korea, if you even possess scripture, then you can be killed, executed for that. Um, your family can be torn apart. If you profess to be a Christian, not only will they kill you, they will kill your children and they will kill your family to try to squelch any kind of faith in your lineage. It is absolutely one of the most horrific places for anybody to try to be a Christian in. Can you imagine God calling you to go to preach the capital city of North Korea? And you walk into that city and you start proclaiming a message, Jesus Christ loves you. 
Turn from your sins, repent. God loves you so much that he sent his son Jesus to die on the cross that whoever believes in him will not perish. But if you started preaching that message and handing out Bibles, how long would you last in North Korea? You would disappear in 10 minutes and no one would ever hear from you again. Unless, like Jonah, God's hand was upon him. God's protection was on him. Something incredible happens when we walk in step with God, when we walk in alignment with God and we're about his will and about his purposes. He goes with us, he goes before us, he prepares the way. There are so many instances where people have been protected by God and like there's no way I should have walked away from that but God protected them. I think King David probably said it really well. He describes this alignment with God and God's protection when he wrote Psalm 91. He writes this, whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. That's a powerful word picture. He will go on to say, I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. What David is communicating is that if you walk with God and in alignment with him, he'll be right there with you no matter where he takes you. It's a powerful thing to rest in the shadow of the Almighty. Most likely, Jonah started in on the west side of the city and he began to make his way from the west side to the east side. We're not exactly sure how he did this. A day's walk in, he, you know, there's 120,000 people living in the city and probably the surrounding areas, but he would walk away, preach, walk some more, preach. Anyway, he did this for three days and he preached his message, 40 more days, and, and you guys are our toast. And after the third day, we get this impression from the story that Jonah made his way out of the east side of the city, found himself a nice little spot, I'm assuming some place that overlooks the city of Nineveh where he can get a good view, and he sits back there and he parks it, and he's waiting for the fireworks to fly. He is waiting for God to rain down fire from heaven um, like in the likes of the world had not seen since Sodom and Gomorrah. That's what I think Jonah's mindset was at. He wanted the city to burn. Why? He had no love for these people. He just preached his message of judgment. These are people who have tortured and maimed um, the Israelites and Jonah wants them dead. We get that impression from chapter four. In fact, looking forward into chapter four, it almost has a sense that Jonah would have found some satisfaction in God's anger being poured out on these Ninevites. It almost has this feel, and we'll get to this next week, but it almost has this feel of like, it's about time you did something, God, and I'm gonna enjoy this. I really think that's where Jonah's heart is at. But check this out, look at verse five. That's not what's gonna happen at all. The Ninevites believed God. I find that interesting. It doesn't say they believed Jonah. It says they believed God. That's a very important detail. They believed God. A fast was proclaimed and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. Despite all the flaws of the messenger, they got the message. Despite all the flaws of Jonah, they got the message and they believed God. I want you to hear something very important here today, church, that the message is always more important than the messenger. 
The message is always more important than the messenger. I've heard people say to me, Joe, I really appreciate that you use a lot of scripture in your sermons, and I do. And that's because it's the word of God that is powerful. It's the word of God that is transformational. Sermons that are devoid of scripture, in my opinion, are sermons that are devoid of any kind of strength or power. Because it's the message, not the messenger. And that's what makes teaching transformational. It's God's word. Sometimes I'll I'll hear some of you say things to me like, man, Joe, it seemed like you were speaking directly to me today. How did you know that I was struggling through that? How did you know? How did you know to say that? And I'll just, trust me, I'm not that good, believe me. Ask my wife, I'm not. It's the message that connects. It's the words of God powered along by the Holy Spirit that makes the message relevant, that makes it convicting, that makes it transformational. And that's why the Bible speaks of itself as the words of God are like a double-edged sword because it's the words that's powerful, not the messenger. So despite Jonah, the Ninevites got the message and here's how they responded to it. They, 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 they did a citywide fast, 120,000 person fast. They put on sackcloth, they, they sat in the dust. All three of these things, fasting, sackcloth, and sitting in dust and ashes was a sign of grief, remorse, and repentance all throughout the Old Testament. We read it many times. They put on sackcloth and ashes because in, in, this is a season, this is a time where the Ninevites, they did not internalize their conviction they, they wore them on the outside. They were wearing their emotions. They were wearing their remorse on the outside for all to see. It says in verse seven, this is the proclamation he issued to Nineveh. This is what the king did. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows, God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. This is mass humility on a grand display. This is a citywide act of humility before God. Do you know how much God hates pride? There's a verse in Proverbs that you may or may not be familiar with. It's a very straightforward uh, couple of verses that just speaks about how much God hates certain things. The, the verse goes like this. It's in Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16. It says that there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him. You know, sometimes people say, I don't know what God wants. I can tell you what he hates. Sometimes when you know what God hates, you might discern what he wants. But there's six things that the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him. And the very first one on the list is this one, haughty eyes, haughty eyes. Do you guys know what haughty is? Haughty is another word for prideful. Haughtiness is to think more highly of yourself than you ought. Haughtiness is like, I want all the glory. Haughtiness is to brag on yourself. Haughtiness is for you to think that the whole world exists and revolves around you to serve your needs, your desires. Haughtiness wants all the glory. They want all the praise, even though they don't deserve it. Haughty people put their needs in front of everybody else. 
And God hates that attitude. Jesus' brother, James, would, would respond to that this way. He said, here's the antidote to that. If God hates us, here's what we need to do. He says, humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up. If God hates pride and haughtiness, that this, this arrogance about people, if God hates that, then, then the flip side is to be humble before the Lord. If you're humble, he will lift you up. Do you wanna know just exactly to the extent that God hates pride in us, this haughty attitude? That, that the Bible speaks that it's the one thing that God will actually oppose you on. There's this one sin that God says, I will oppose you if this sin is in your life. And it's the sin of pride. It's like, if you're pushing this way, God's like, I will push against you. Friends, this world's got enough things pushing against us. I don't need God giving it a little nudge. Peter said it like this, this, this thing that God hates about pride. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5, he says this to the church. All of you clothe yourself in humility towards one another because, here's why. Why should the whole church be humble before God? Because God opposes the proud but shows favor. Some translations say gives grace to the humble. So, Peter says, humble yourselves, therefore under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Simple, God hates pride. But he'll show grace and favor for your humility. And that's exactly what he did to the Ninevites. Every example you read about in scripture where you see humility, you also see God's favor. Humility and God's favor go together. Now, now look in verse 10. Let's wrap this up. When God saw, that they, uh, saw what they did, and how they turned from their evil ways. He relented and did not bring on them the destruction that he had threatened. As they changed their ways, God changed his mind. It's that simple. As they changed their ways, God changed his mind. As you change your ways, God changes his mind where you should spend eternity. As you're humble before God and accept his son Jesus by faith, God opens heaven's doors to you. Can I lovingly ask you a question this morning, church? Who in here needs a do-over? I wonder who in this room right now is on a ship sailing in the wrong direction because you think you can get far enough away from God that he can't find you. I hope you know running from God is a wasted effort and there's never been a person in the history of the world that's been able to successfully run and hide from God. So what does God want from you? He wants humility, repentance, and come back to him. You look at the story of Jonah and this is the fascinating part to me is that Jonah got a do-over. He, re he received grace he didn't deserve. In the exact same way, the Ninevites got a do-over and they received the grace they didn't deserve. In the same way, every single one of us in this room got a do-over and received the grace that we didn't deserve. 
It's the same God exhibiting the same grace, the same mercy, the same love, the same patience on Jonah, the Ninevites, and on us. Let Romans chapter two be a word of encouragement to you today. Romans 2, 4 says, don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Can't you see that his kindness is intended to turn you from your sin? Another passage of the Bible says, the Lord is very patient with us. Why? Because he doesn't want anyone to perish eternally. As you change your ways, God changes his mind. As you come to faith, God opens heaven's doors for you. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Are you on the wrong ship, heading the wrong direction? Maybe God's saying it's time for you to change course. Can I pray for you? Dear gracious God, I just thank you for your holy word. Lord, I thank you for how how your Holy Spirit energizes and empowers your word and how it's convicting and it's directional and it's life-changing. And Lord, my prayer for us as a church family here is that, Lord, we would never let our pride ever get in the way. That, Lord, every last one of us in this room would stay humble before you. That, Lord, we choose to just obey humbly to walk faithfully with you, to align ourselves with you in all humility and seek, Lord, your grace and your favor on our lives. That, Lord, every day, every word that comes out of our mouth is not about how great we are, but look at how great our God is. As, Lord, as we look forward to that day when you will make everything right, that day when we will be with you in all eternity, Lord, I pray that you'll keep that ever in the front of our minds so that we'll stay humble and that you will shine bright before the world. Lord, we we love you. Lord, we thank you for all that you've done for us, for dying on the cross and raising back to life and being alive to this day and coming back again. Lord, that's the foundation of our faith and we love you for it, Lord. And thank you for giving us mercy. In Jesus' name, amen.